Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, previewing the new tech leader and tech office in the Pentagon. The real cloud security problems aren't what you think they are. And the next generation of security clearances at DCSA. It's Monday, October 24th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast, sponsored today by Verizon. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Today is the first full day of ACT-IAC's Executive Leadership Conference, Imagination 2022 in Hershey, Pennsylvania. I am here in Hershey covering the event. You'll get highlights of the discussions and my conversations with lots of thought leaders in the coming days on the Daily Scoop podcast. The Office of the Secretary of Defense has a new Chief Information Officer and a new execution structure for technology. Michael Donnelly will head up the office and Daniel Metz will direct it. David Berteau is President and CEO of the Professional Services Council. He's former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Logistics and Materiel Readiness. David, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. I proposed uh, discussing this and you said, as you always do, I have a bigger concept in mind about what this means and what this says about where the department is headed. What is that bigger idea, that bigger concept about filling jobs at DOD? Welcome. Uh, thank you, Francis, and thanks for having me on. So I think you can look at that particular decision uh, in, in the broader context of you know how well the administration is doing in the realm of execution and implementation of its initiatives. Big focus on IT modernization, big focus on integrating the requirements of things like cybersecurity and data uh, utilization, as well as bringing innovation in from the from the commercial sector, the, you know, the non-traditional suppliers, et cetera. And obviously the CIO will play a key role in that. I would note that this CIO, it's not just for the immediate office of the secretary, it's really for the entire uh, a broader fourth estate, right? So anything outside the military departments, which is bigger than most cabinet departments all by itself. Um, but I think it's it's that ability to get to the focus of how we're going to execute these these initiatives, how we're going to administer them so that they're actually implemented instead of just put on paper and issued as press releases. All right. You pointed out to me in the email exchange about having you come on the program. Uh, you wrote this. I think there are at least nine nominees on the Senate's executive calendar for DOD awaiting confirmation after having cleared committee some since January. So while the execution is a positive in the case of this OCIO for OSD, there's still some pretty big holes, some pretty big shoes that need filling almost two years into this administration. What's the implication of that for the operation of the department in your experience, David? Well, as you know, Francis, I've been through a number of these transitions and some of them where I was on the out and the inside leaving and some coming and some going coming in and somewhere I'm just outside watching and somewhere I'm caught in the middle. Um, but it, it, and, and there are a lot of things that can be done without the cabinet, the Senate confirmed appointees at the sub cabinet level in place. But there are other things that just basically need that person in the job, um, both for the continuity and for the certainty. And there are actually statutory authorities that cannot be exercised by anybody other than the Senate confirmed position uh, in that case. And, but the real problem is not in where the authorities lie, but it's in the tendency of the bureaucracy both the political and the career civil service to wait until the final person is in there before a final decision is made. So you may do some interim steps. You may do some interim action. The problem is it's only 48 months for an administration. And it's actually only 45 months until the election of the next administration, maybe the same one coming back. 
right? So you're almost halfway through. Uh, and if you don't have your people in place, now this is not entirely the White House's fault. You know, when you've got people who reported out of committee in January and they're still sitting on the calendar waiting to be confirmed, you got to put some of that blame on, on the Senate as well. Uh, going forward there. And so I, I think it's a, it's a problem on both sides. The problem, uh, one of the big problems is uh, the budget issues that, uh, I mean, a lot of these folks that you're referring to are people who would, if they were in place, have a, a pretty high level, pretty important influence on what the budget request looks like. That's in progress for fiscal 24. And some of those seats are not full. Some of those seats are not full. And you, you look at where we are, you know, the Defense Department runs its own budget preparation process. OMB participates in it uh, almost as an equal partner for the civilian agencies. You know, they have already submitted their budgets for FY24 uh, to the White House back in September. And the OMB is busy reviewing those. And I suspect, the, the you know, within a few months, a few weeks, actually, we'll be seeing the passbacks. How do you build an FY24 budget, especially on the civilian agency side, when you have no agreement in the Congress on what FY23 is going to be like? Right. And, and so that's where the administration having its key people in place, confirmed and on the job comes really critical, both for the internal trade space in the agencies and for the interagency trade space with OMB as that budget is put together. Here's the reason that I uh, appreciated your suggestion that we hit on this, because midterm elections are a couple of weeks away and that period between when the midterm elections happen and the new Congress sits the beginning of January is normally when an administration says to its political appointees, if you're leaving, leave now so that we can start to get the next round of candidates in. So we're going to have a round of jobs, sadly, that were never filled through the first cycle and as the second cycle is about to begin. And I wonder what that potentially means for accomplishing these things that this administration, that any administration wants to accomplish throughout the course of its term. It, it also puts some barriers in the place of recruiting folks for these vacant jobs, right? Um, it, it's one thing to come into administration at its beginning where you've got a runway of, you know, a few years to uh, uh, develop design execute and implement uh, new ideas and, and changes to current processes. Uh, it's another when you get, and the, the train is already halfway around the track, right, uh, to, to go forward there. But I think there's an additional question that, that really faces the, the Congress in particular, but the White House in terms of negotiations. Um, we don't know what the election outcome is going to be, right? I mean, one thing we've all learned is that elections are generally decided by the people who stay home, and we don't know who's going to stay home, right, uh, this time. Um, but it is certainly true that the 117th Congress will cease to exist on January 3rd, and the 118th Congress will be sworn in, and at least it's likely to have a, a less favorable composition for the White House than the current one. So there's really some decisions that have to be made of what do you push for in November and December, and what do you plan for in January and beyond. You need your full team in place to do that, and you need to be thinking about how you're going to implement with what you already have, as well as how you're going to propose additional new ideas. You just recently had your big defense conference for a PSC, David. What did you learn there from your members in particular about what's happening execution-wise, especially given the fact that, once again, we're in the middle of a continuing resolution that's going to take us through at least December and maybe longer, probably longer, uh, and so, and then all of these issues that we've talked about here that are potentially hindering implementation and execution. What what are you hearing is actually happening on the ground? 
Well, we've heard three things and they're not exactly consistent with one another. So let me outline them for you. Number one is uh, contracts are still very slow in being awarded. So we have just tons of, of, of uh, proposals that were submitted on time and have been waiting for months or in some cases years before award, right? And periodically the government will come back and say, uh, can you extend the validity of your proposal for another three months? This is a real challenge, right? Because you've got key personnel that you've lined up and you, you can't put them on the job yet. So you, how do you extend that? The second thing is that we actually had a bang up fourth quarter for FY22 and it made up for lost ground. I think the last time I talked to you, uh, agencies were running behind in terms of spending their appropriations. They didn't completely catch up, but it was a record third quarter in civilian agencies and a record fourth quarter in civilian agencies. I don't have the fourth quarter DOD data yet uh, because they, they, they delay it for 90 days for national security purposes. Um, but uh, uh, but it was they they did catch up. So there were there even though there's long delays, there were substantial awards uh, before the end of the fiscal year. Obviously, the CR puts a damper on that, and we're not going to see a whole lot of effort in in the first quarter. But the third thing is that they're hearing from their customers. We're not sure how much money we're going to get in FY23 or when we're going to get it. So there's a hesitancy to move forward. Even if it's authorized under a CR, there's a hesitancy to move forward because of that uncertainty of what the future looks like and when it's going to arrive. Those three don't work very well together. That last one, though, shouldn't be a surprise, though, should it? Well, I'll tell you what, it is a little bit of a surprise, Francis, because for 10 years, we had the BCA caps in place. Oh, yeah. And while those caps were a ceiling, they were also a floor. So no matter where Congress was in the negotiations with the White House, you were pretty sure you knew where they were going to end up. Now we have no cap. We also have no floor. So there's more uncertainty now than there was in FY21, 2019 and on backwards. I always learn something from you, David. I always appreciate having you on the show. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to be with you. I look forward to the next one. You can read more about the new CIO office at OSD in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. And you'll hear from Danielle Metz, the director of that office, coming in a couple of weeks on the Defense Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, coming on tomorrow's show, the health of the acquisition workforce at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Shelby Oakley of the Government Accountability Office gives you an inside look on Tuesday's Daily Scoop podcast. You can find that show anywhere you get your podcasts or always at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Army is more than a year into its digital transformation strategy execution plan now. Virtually every agency is making progress on moving to digital infrastructure. Scott Anderson is Distinguished Enterprise Architect at Verizon Federal Solutions, and Verizon sponsors today's Daily Scoop podcast. Scott, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Regarding those digital transformations that agencies are undertaking, what are the real security problems that those agencies are wrestling with or that they should be wrestling with that versus what they think their big security problems are? Welcome. Oh, well, first of all, thanks for having me. You know, security is an interesting problem. Uh, first of all, when we think about security, networks have evolved. You know, if you look back to 2009, most networks were designed as Tootsie Pops, a hard outer core, soft, chewy center. But that hard outer core protected that soft, chewy center. 2011, you know, the, the cloud world explodes and everybody begins moving to the cloud. And what they did is they took that soft, chewy center and they moved it to somewhere else. So now they have this beautiful hard core and everybody's 
sees it and tries to hit it. Uh, but the reality is your, your data is actually often in the cloud, often in other places. And so for out of that, you know, the government did what is called FedRAMP and things like that. And, and there are ultimately a number of problem areas that occur um, that people miss. One of the problem areas is uh, covered by the solutions within SASE or Secure Access Service Edge, uh, often uh, leading down the path of what is called zero trust networking. So Verizon publishes a report every year called the DBIR, Data Breach Investigation Report. You can go to verizon.com, type DBIR into the search there, and it comes up. And we do it every year. In 2021, and this, by the way, you know, shouldn't be. This should just not be. This is a known problem. It has happened for, for 10 years, but it's still a problem. 50% of the, of the breaches in government and commercial and anywhere else in the world, 50% were the uh, pejorative term man-in-the-middle attack. I'm going to call them person-in-the-middle attack. A person-in-the-middle attack, which is basically a phishing email with a URL that says your Amazon Prime account was canceled. Please log in and redo your payment, right? You log in, you type everything in. It doesn't work, right? Most users just say, oh, it's my browser. They click the close the browser. They walk away. They forget about it. Huge exposure. That is a massive exposure that still exists. 50% of all of the breaches in 2021. So a, a lot of times it's we forget old breaches are still there. A lot of times we forget that there are lots of different ways now that this data and everything else is moving around. The challenge there, too, is the old line, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. You know, this stuff works 15 or 20 years into the, the, the mass appeal Internet age. And I wonder what you do about that or how you should think about it as a federal leader. I mean, is, do you think about it only as an insider threat mitigation problem? Because it's not a malicious threat. That person in the middle isn't trying to do something bad, but they do it anyway. And I wonder if that's still the right way to think about how you try to mitigate that risk, Scott. Well, insider threats are huge. Uh, unfortunately, uh, insider threats are still the biggest single problem that most organizations are going to have, no matter what you do. The people on the inside, they already have access. They don't have to steal access. They have it. Um, so, you know, obviously that is a, a significant problem uh, that has to be dealt with. And, and that is where SASE and, and, and the reality of zero trust networking begin to help. Um, you know, there, there are two things I always tell people when they ask me about security. The first is, if you make your security so onerous that nobody follows it, it's useless. Right. I mean, the sad reality of security is if nobody follows the process, it doesn't matter how secure you think you are. You're not because nobody follows it. So that's one. Uh, and the other side is, you know, be very careful where you implant security. Years ago, we used to always say put the highest security on the PC and the lowest security on the user because the PC normally tends to, except for Tuesdays, log in once a day. Tuesdays, the twice a day, right? You download the patch, reboot the machine, you know, it logs in twice on Tuesdays. But normally the PC logs in once. So highest on the PC, lowest on the user. But now in this modern age with SASE and Zero Trust, we can actually help. We can actually begin to put the security on network devices. We can build a structure that better supports what the organization is looking to do from a security perspective at the network level. What is the role or the responsibility or the potential benefit 
that the cloud provider can provide to the customer in order to be able to try to mitigate some of this risk, Scott? Well, well, first of all, you know, this is an interesting problem. I was a, a cloud person back in the days when, when people looked at you and go, well, what's the, what's cloud? <laughs> it's up in the sky. That's what do you right. mean? You're, I, I can remember talking to my mother and my mother saying, and she's a very smart person. She just, clouds are water vapor. Why, why are you selling cloud? Um, so, so when we talk about, you know, the benefits for cloud, well, first of all, you know, Verizon has a solution that we've built um, that kind of allows customers better connectivity to the cloud, which is, you know, kind of step one, right? Get a better connection solution to the cloud, build that connection solution so that you have a stronger view. And then the other side of it is, if you think about what a hacker is going to attack, uh, they attack the, the big cloud providers at a very high rate an extremely high rate. So what you get when you go to the cloud providers is you get people who have been exposed to virtually every attack out there. You're not likely to get the, the user error required with many attacks because they've seen it. They know what the response is. They build processes around it. They understand it. Um, so that, you know, that's kind of this new world of the cloud providers probably get more security attacks. Obviously with the government, we can argue that a little bit. Many of the cloud providers probably are as attacked as some government agencies are. Um, but the reality is that they do understand and they do have practices and processes in place to be effective in helping the customers. And then again, Verizon's got that nice new solution there that we can actually benefit and help our customers by giving them a private connection to the cloud. So they're no longer on the internet. That reduces the hacker's ability to even get at you because you're not visible. How you get to that is another big question and, a, and another big focus of the federal information technology community. We talked about trusted internet connection, uh, the, the tick concept for, geez, 15, 16, 17 years now, I think. Is that a moot point in 2022, given the way that agencies access the cloud to get uh, information online or to exchange data online? Or is that still an important consideration, the way in which one connects to its cloud? Incredibly awesome question. So, you know, again, going back to, you know, we have this beautiful solution that we've built that allows the customer to connect to the cloud privately. In theory, and I'm saying in theory because most of the customers that use it today still have a TIC connection. But in theory, they wouldn't need a TIC because it's all private, right? It, we're, we're providing a service on their network instead of a service in the cloud. So when you think about one of the things about cloud, I traversed my network, got to a tick, went out to the internet and talked to the cloud provider. With this new solution, you don't do that anymore. Now, I stay on my network the entire time, go directly to the cloud provider in a private connection, and I suddenly have this private world that is no longer bound. And if I add tick, I just increased my protection radically by decreasing even further um, the, the reality of the hacker. And all of this, by the way, is software defined. So if a hacker does somehow gain access to my Amazon world, if a hacker is able to completely take control of my Amazon, I can go to a portal and I can shut Amazon off until my IT team can get into that cloud and figure out what the hacker modified, modify and, and take out everything that they did. Meanwhile, 
the hacker can be sitting there all day long trying to get back to my network and there's no connection back to my network. They're just pounding their head on a brick wall, which painful for them, but good for me. Yeah, that helps you. And, and who cares what happens to them since they're the ones that are trying to take you down. <laughs> um, while you were talking there and before you got to the idea of, of software-defined architecture, I wrote down the word software-defined architecture because this is something that agencies are saying we want to move to this. What are the tools that agencies that are moving to software-defined architecture using to do so successfully, Scott? Well, yeah, and it, it, we actually have a, a really fun framework that we've built out. To, you know, it, it's aligned with the old Gartner uh, maturity model of years ago, you know, basic to dynamic. Uh, and we help, you know, we help customers by placing all the activities that they have to do. Um, one of the big things within... Uh, getting to the software defined world you know is ultimately asking yourself the hard question right do, do i want to manage my network anymore um i actually talked to a, a government customer just about a month and a half ago uh, and the very first thing the person said in the meeting i mean this is word one out of their mouth was i don't want to be unique anymore i want to be consumer i want to be like everybody else I'd never heard that before. I, I stopped for a second and I'm like, really? That's awesome. I love it. I, we'll get you there. You know, because usually the lag between, and, you know, in cloud and in networks and in software, the lag between the commercial release and the release for the federal government is sometimes as much as a year. Well, let's cut that year out. That That's awesome, right? So step one, right? I've got this, this concept of, of, moving more towards commercial. Step two is how much do I really want to manage? So if I give up the network and let Verizon or, or another vendor manage the network for me, you know, that moves me down that path of what is often called SD-WAN or software-defined wide area networking. That's, you know, kind of step one. But Verizon goes even further. We have a solution set that we call NAS, Network as a Service. And what we do within NAS is, first of all, we apply this maturity framework. We help you get to your end state. And we begin building this structure around you so that you're truly moving to your network as a service. And I always tell customers when we have that initial NAS conversation, think of it as building a network that responds to your problems before you know you have a problem. Scott Anderson of Verizon, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for the insight. I appreciate your time today. Oh, no problem. Happy to be here. You can read more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. A new front end is speeding the clearance process for applicants and agencies. More than 60 agencies are using the EAP system now. Jeff Smith is Executive Program Manager of the National Background Investigation Service at the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency. Jeff, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. Where did you start in this transition to EAP? What did you have before? What was it doing, and why did you think it was necessary to do something else instead? Welcome, Jeff. Yes, thank you, Francis, and uh, thank you for your audience giving me the time to speak a little bit about the National Background Investigation Services System, known as INBIS. Uh, so INBIS is the identified uh, transformational IT platform that's going to replace our, our current legacy background investigation system. Uh, Inbus uh, is kind of being developed under in uh, modules or pillars to support our mission owners and our the whole of government population and our federal workforce. 
uh, and our industry partners. So these uh, Imbus is designed on uh, getting after subject management and adjudications, background investigation, our newest uh, capability, continuous vetting. And then when we get to EAP, uh, it is the cornerstone for the front door uh, known as case initiation. So this pillar in our iterative development of the system became the first out the gate in order to, one, get a presence established in a new transformational system and then allow us to activate um, the ability for the customers to to move from the legacy system, uh, what was known as Equip, and I'm sure many of your audience are familiar with the, the clunkiness and the large paper volume that goes with that system, uh, moving into Invis and case initiation and uh, EAP is an ability to put a transformational, uh, transformational capability in play to speed along that application process. So it's pillar one, and it's the front end, the front door for Invis entry. And the goals were to make it more effective, to build in uh, common logic, uh, to design out that paperwork uh, problem that many people had. It was also uh, built with that logic in order to speed the investigation or the application process. So it's built with uh, error checking and correction. So when the subject uh, starts to fill out the application, uh, if you make a mistake, the system is guarding for those mistakes. It guards for the timeframes that the individual is trying to capture from their locations, their previous work histories, their relationships, their travel, their finances, uh, drugs, etc. The, the logic that's built into EAP is fundamentally there to speed and reduce those errors on the back end between the customer and the agency that they're submitting to or applying towards. And this has been problematic is the front starting point that has slowed the background investigations process. Are there time, are there technologies that are available to you now that are enabling this transition or is this primarily just kind of a workflow, uh, customer feedback, um, uh, applicant feedback process that you use to refine the new application and have it do these things that you just described, or maybe some combination of both or something else, Jeff? No, great question. So again, when we talk about uh, building from the ground up, um, many will recognize that uh, Invis was born out of the OPM breach of our legacy system. Uh, that breach uh, led Congress to looking for ways to uh, charter new IT investments, transformational uh, business processes. And the underpinnings to get us started was a, uh, uh, an investment in a very robust cybersecurity platform. So we've spent a lot of time and years getting after the best practices of cybersecurity to build the foundation up from the bottom, just like you would build a house. Uh, and on top of that, we built it in an environment on, on Amazon Web Services government cloud. So AWS GovCloud, is a the cloud services provider that allows us to build into these into the system these mission pillars such as case initiation for EAP, uh, all those forms, all those standard forms that the applicants go through. It allows us to build in uh, the continuous vetting module uh, iteratively, uh, the background investigations module, as well as the adjudications module. And as a whole package, that becomes a unified platform. It's going to sunset seven disparate systems that we are currently using. And when I use the term seven disparate systems, they're stovepipe systems that our missions have to bring to bear uh, for our population, not only for getting a clearance, but running them through and ensuring that they 
meet the trusted workforce goals that uh, are, are the, the, the department is after over I think I counted the modules correctly. I think you described four modules that are replacing seven systems. So it sounds like there was some business process rethinking there uh, and not just a technological refresh. Am I, am I thinking about that the right way, Jeff? Absolutely. And uh, the same thing, these cloud services, the new, uh, the ability to put in new uh, workflows, uh, the essence of Invis, the underpinnings of cross uh, functional investments allow us to take advantage of code, software code, that allows a case to transcend through those four mission areas. So those are, I used it as pillars, but they're really mission areas, uh, adjudications, uh, background investigation, continuous vetting. Uh, but these, this essence, cross-cutting threads, foundational investments are reused to allow that case or that subject to move through these pillars to be evaluated, assessed, and ultimately approved to be part of the trusted workforce community. There's one element of this that I think is new, but I imagine there are others too. Uh, The capability that strikes me is new is the continuous vetting that you described because that's something that is part of this transition strikes me from a kind of a almost philosophical perspective or a worldview perspective. So that's different and would have to be new technology. But I imagine there are other new capabilities that when all of these modules in place, you'll have that you didn't have before. Is that true? Uh, yes, absolutely. Again, and if you think about this this new approach uh, to establish a more robust uh, uh, trusted workforce, there absolutely need to be new processes and procedures and technologies brought to bear. Uh, continuous vetting uh, originally was envisioned as continuous evaluation. It's roughly about four years old in the concept. Uh, if you want to compare that to the background investigations mission, they've been using the same system and updating it for roughly about 39 years. Continuous vetting being about four years old and is still in this infancy required new investments, new practices, required us to be able to process data on multiple fabrics, classification fabrics, and we have successfully deployed uh, HiSide or, or JWIX fabric capability out there for our uh, continuous vetting analysts to start using and mitigate risk as we're speaking today. So Invis functionality and continuous vetting has been brought online. And, uh, and then we continue to iteratively advance uh, fundamental change for adjudications and background investigations as well. We've talked about technology so far, Jeff. I want to ask you about the broader mission objective, which is to get to Trusted Workforce 2.0, where that continuous vetting process is in place all the time. There are milestones that you've set up to get between to get from where you started to get to that Trusted, uh, trusted Workforce 2.0 uh, objective. What does that look like from a, a mission objective perspective, and how does the technology that we've talked about so far help you to get from point a to point b again so when when we talk about how inbus uh with uh, dcsa um uh, roughly about two years ago uh, building out a rebaselining the fundamental program that had been roughly about four years in the making if you if you go back to the breach in 2015 four years had passed uh it did not really get off the ground uh, in 2020, uh, this orga- organization, DCSA, had the opportunity to take over and rebaseline the program, restructure it, and apply agile software development and programmatic processes to get after this problem. So that rebaseline was about a two and a half year effort that projected where we would iteratively build out the system and mature it over time. 
The interesting part about this was, if you think about, again, building a house and building blocks, you start with a foundation. But rather than waiting till the end to move in, we literally start having our customer bases use and activate and join the system before the roof is finished, before the, all the walls and rooms are complete. So this is a unique process where we have an operational system that's up and running with early adopters crossing the threshold, and we're still maturing the system and growing that capability daily. So new drops of software come in uh, on a weekly basis, a daily basis, a monthly basis, a quarterly basis, until we ultimately will um, land at the ability to have enough functionality to sunset all seven of those legacy systems and then move us and position us to new capabilities of Trust the Workforce 2.0. So it's an iterative process. You'll often hear software is never done, and that's intentionally to say that policy continues to change. The system that we've designed around or built and invested in allows us to continue to meet that policy change and evolve through future changes uh, as a a, uh, U.S. government. Yeah, you kind of anticipated my next question, Jeff, which is what's the flexibility that you've built into this to make sure that as uh, as capability needs change, as mission delivery demands change, or as policy uh, changes, that you'll be able to flex this system rather than getting to a point where you are with the legacy system where, well, okay, this is something now we have to think about changing out. Yes, sir. And again, I think when you you talk about uh, new uh, terminologies uh, from cloud-based approaches uh, to building, you know, robust, uh, interchangeable cybersecurity uh, postures, it gives you this flexibility to grow uh, in space, in robustness, as well as uh, being able to support um, the demands of of a a growing population. So today we're servicing roughly about 36 a million clearance holders, and and we would obviously anticipate that to ebb and flow, but likely continue to grow uh, into the future. So yes, the underpinnings have to be there and have to be flexible enough to grow with your not only your policy change, but with your community as uh, writ large. You talked about sunsetting the legacy systems; those those seven uh, pieces that you want to retire. What's your timeline for doing that? Yeah, so in, in that journey, we, the agency, had the opportunity um, back in 2021 to sunset the first system, which was JPass. It was a system that uh, was part of our subject management uh, and adjudications module. When it trans, uh, transitioned over, uh, we had the opportunity to rebuild some of that code in one of the complementary systems. Uh, and then uh, essentially, as we mature and complete each one of these uh, pillars in adjudications, sub, uh, BI and CV, it kind of gives us the opportunity to iteratively sunset those systems. Now, here's the uniqueness. So we have actually two platforms running. We have our legacy systems running in parallel as we are maturing the systems. So by not creating a cliff, uh, we can push the envelope and accept risk or, or manage risk. but we're not forced to have to complete it and put something out too early before it's time. So it gives us the luxury to kind of build it, be smart. And once we uh, have confidence, then we will make that uh, conscious decision to sunset those legacy systems. Do you have a timeline in mind or is it um, when we're ready to, which is a fair answer. I just wonder if there's a calendar attached or if it's a capability judgment that you'll make. Yeah, our, our goal today is to uh, build enough capability uh, to sunset all the remaining six systems uh, by the fourth quarter of FY23. So that's our objective. 
Um, so over the next, uh, literally over the next year, we will likely take a big bite out of each one of these systems. Now, as you get towards the end of your program, uh, that's where you may you may uh, manage it very carefully, just not to cut off your nose to spite your face. So we'll be very careful, deliberate, and methodical in doing that last run. The software experts that I've spoken to over the years concur with your earlier statement that software is never done. So I wonder how you will judge success. Software, it strikes me, I guess, is easy. You turn it on, and if it does the job you wanted it to do, it works. But more broadly, do you have a success metric or metrics in mind, or is, from a capability perspective, is having a better outcome and achieving these capabilities that you've described, if you do that versus the legacy systems that you've retired, that's how you judge success, Jeff? Yes, that's, that is one of the most fundamental changes for a mission owner that when you apply agile capabilities, you bring the mission owner to the problem. In the past, in our traditional acquisition, we would normally get a stack of requirements and a traditional acquisition program would go off in a corner and build it, you know, five to seven, maybe 10 years later, they would come out and deliver it. And you would hope that you met the customer's expectations and you were you were graded against, did I meet 100 requirements? But you often got what we often refer to as drive-by field and you got a capability that didn't really meet the customer's intent. So Agile allows us to bring the customer to the front face of the problem. And as a collective, uh, developers and customers work very diligently, not only to get after exactly what the customer wants, but be able to refine it even if they miss it on the first increment or the first deliverable uh, from a sprint or from a, an iterative delivery quarterly basis, we have the ability to refine it. And yes, the measuring stick in increment one is uh, guard for the requirements that were built in those legacy systems and ensure that you got the fundamentals of that system, but not to rebuild it. We are not looking to rebuild those systems uh, as they are today. We're actually looking to uh, identify the capabilities and it, with the business owners, the most valuable capabilities, and then continue to enhance and transform uh, transform the business processes. So business processes, uh, process reengineering is the new terminology to take us into the next, uh, the next level of transformal, uh, transformational capabilities. At what point do you think it could be or uh, will be necessary to revisit uh, and, and to rethink the business process and, or, or is that just kind of a judgment call that you'll know it when you see it? It's interesting because it actually happens through this iterative process. So a customer sitting there, uh, as an example, might today take 10 steps to complete a process through this, uh, collaboration, this, uh, the ability of the systems investments, the cost cutting, uh, capabilities that are inherent into the design they actually start to realize that I can actually get the same results, not in 10 steps, but I can do it in three steps. So they actually start to transform their processes as they're iteratively touching the system, testing it. And we also, uh, before they even get to testing, we allow them to go into, we often refer to it as a playground environment where they get to play on the system, configure the workflows, and they are different business processes than they do it today. Uh, but again, it's about guarding for the outcome, but looking for ways to do it more effective and efficiently. Jeff Smith of DCSA, thank you very much for the insight into what you're doing. Appreciate your time. Yes, sir. Thank you.
You can read more about EAP in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop Podcast is back tomorrow. Till then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.